0: Hello, this is Stephen Coates of the Bureau of Lost Culture. The Bureau of Lost Culture, digging up, reconstituting, revivifying lost countercultural stories. Those kind of stories that you might find in the attic if your great uncle had been a beat poet. This episode is the second of two. We're going to rejoin our guest, Nick Laird Clues, to the second part of the conversation as he takes us. On a very personal tour of the English underground musical scene of the sixties and nineteen seventies, in the last episode we had the extraordinary tales of his youth: met the Beatles, written to John Lennon, been on protest marches, been to the Isle of Wight Festival, DJed at Roundhouse before most of us had even smoked our first cigarette, and this is long before he achieved fame and fortune. With his band The Dream Academy, and then went on to be a film composer and all sorts of other things. We rejoin Nick and my colleague and collaborator Paul Hartfield as we're listening to Sly and the Family Stone with You Got Me Smiling. You Got Me Smiling. Yeah.
1: got a oh, smiling uh, nick smile uh, <laughs> you along there 1971 i mean you know i got this thing i watched uh, woodstock for the first time i always I didn't really like the film at the time but i watched it recently again uh maybe 10 years ago and i was like my god everyone has dated but nobody the future was in one band there Sly and the Family Stone. It's funny, because you, you say 71, but... I wouldn't have guessed that. 71. You couldn't. I mean, <laughs> he was so ahead of his time. Mm. And when you see him in 69 at, the, uh, uh, at Woodstock, he's got a multiracial band, men, women. It, the sound, the funk, they're dressed in spacesuits. <laughs> they were... Who would have had the money... The, if the money had been you know, 10 years after, Or it would have been some other thing. You would not have said that was leading the way and everything was going that way. And and it still feels completely modern. Listen, and the distortion. Yeah, yeah it's, on his it's voice. so
0: so fresh. Also loose as well. I mean, like, that drums all over the place. Yeah, and well. Then, you know. <laughs> 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 but that's. I mean, isn't that fascinating? Because in a way, that's a very different feel than some of that heavier political countercultural stuff that's going on, isn't
1: it? It's very sort of summery and breezy and groovy and. And yet, that album's called There's a Riot going on, and it was heavily political. But he wasn't above, you know, the politics of love, there's a family affair, and you've caught me smiling again. I don't know what he had to be caught, but I (laughs) suspect he was up to no good, (laughs) Sylvester. (laughs) Um, Before we sort of uh, go
0: too far from uh, um, these shores... um, you mentioned uh, somebody a couple of times, and actually, in terms of uh, uh, the the, the groupy thing that you mentioned earlier, we had Jenny Fabian in here.
1: God, we've had everyone. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. So she? <laughs> <laughs> oh, What oh, 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 the good oh, Fast, uh, very fast. fast.
0: I'm not sure if you had sly, but uh, there's various people in there. But the figure that sort of is ghostly behind uh, many of these stories. We we had your neighbour Sam Hut in, you know, um, um Hank Wankford. Uh, And what who often comes up in these stories, you mentioned him twice, of course, is Sid Barrett. And I think there's something about Sid Barrett was that sums up both sides of the story somehow, doesn't it? The kind of amazingly wonderful fairy side of it. And then this sort of
1: seeping darkness. And the pure art leading to the demise of the character. But, you know, he was just extraordinary. You're right, it brings... Actually, the two cultures, the American and the British together, because there's a famous story I think Pete Jenner told me that uh, they were in America, I think Jenner, and they were, uh, Sid said, Oh, the music, the music, what's it like? And they they said, It's incredible, a psychedelic thing happening, and you've got to hear. And they played Love uh, over the phone, uh, Little Red book, I think, which was a, a, a rack song, in fact. But anyway, it was on the first Love album. And Sid heard it and immediately wrote something, one of the absolute classics, based on what he'd heard down the <laughs> phone on his idea of what American psychedelia was but through an English filter. He bought that very English uh, mixture of the blues mm. art school whimsy psychedelia he was a crucial crucial figure and a a true true artist i mean when he left the floyd you know in the end when he was taking and he was painting and he was Mm -hmm. alone and going through all the machinations i mean much 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 later in his life he he'd do the paintings and then he'd destroy them right yeah and that was yeah. that was how real it was yeah,
0: for yeah. Him. actually we should just mention because of course um you organized the um the the sid barrett memorial concert didn't yeah. you after he yeah. died with, back joe in, boyd, yeah. with joe boyd like yeah. back in 2006 yeah. what what's
1: what inspired you to do that i mean joe boyd who i'd known for years and had actually produced an album before my band the dream academy my band the act he'd produced an album uh, for me, uh, called Too Late at 20. And um, he had just written White Bicycles, his brilliant book on the counterculture and his life. Um, and he said, I've been asked to do the memorial concert for Sid Barrett by the Barbican, and I've got to do, go and promote my book. I'm not even quite sure how I'd do it. Do you want to have a think about it? And uh, I'll call you on Monday. So I, he called on Monday, and I said, right the good old days on acid, and he said, oh, don't say anything, <laughs> come straight down, I'm going to pick you up, we're going to go straight to the barbecue and pitch it straight to them. Well,
0: before we before we say that, let's give a bit of context for somebody who doesn't oh, know the, the, good the good old days. The good old days <laughs> was
1: an Edwardian uh, style programme that was on late at night on television through the 60s and early 70s that had, oh, ladies and gentlemen, oh, you'll be, you'll be, and people swinging from sort of uh, seats and it was the um, Edwardian musical. Vaudeville. Uh, Vaudeville, thank you, Vaudeville. Mm. But what's so interesting is that Edwardian culture, for some strange psychedelic reason in the psychedelic mind, was very much informed the Beatles, uh, the and, and and British psychedelia. It was part of it, and possibly it even went to America too. I don't know why, but I suddenly felt if you could do, the Girl Days had. 12 songs mm. and they were you know people dressed up in Edwardian costumes and would do the old famous songs you know underneath the arches or whatever it was and I thought Sid this is it. this is it so luckily the Barbican went for it and Joe every couple of weeks he'd come back and say where are we what have we got and he'd started off very nicely with um, with uh, The Who and Bowie said they'd do it so I was like well I don't think this is going to be too difficult <laughs> who have you got right exactly so <laughs> yeah. then we found out um, I started having to really work, so I, I went to huge lengths to find that I could be in a place where Chrissy Hind, Chrissy Hind's manager, was going to be. And I joined a friend there, and uh, and I just sort of dropped into the conversation. I'm doing this thing, and I said, I wonder if Chrissy'd like to do it. And she said, oh, I don't know if Chrissy liked the Floyd, she said, rolling her eyes. And she said, well, I'll ask her. And I said, Well, it's, it's for Sid. And uh, so the next day, um, I get a call from Joe saying, um, Pete Townsend says the Who need more rehearsal for their tour, and um, and uh, Bowie's pulled out. So I was like, well, oh, mm. oh, oh, right, okay. And just at that moment, I see that my car's about to get a ticket, and I'm running to the thing. When my phone goes, Nick, Chrissie Hynde, Chrissie, I just look. <laughs> oh, I'm about to get a t- uh, listen. Hey, I loved Sid. Um, when I lived with Nick um, Kent, I was like, oh, you lived with Nick Kent? When I lived with Nick Kent, um, the great uh, uh, journalist, friends, uh, rock and roll journalist, when I lived with Nick Kent, we, that's all we listened to was the mad cat laughs. Uh, uh, and, hey, so who have you got? I said, uh, I'm, um, I've got, uh, well, we had the who and boy, <laughs> um, but they've just dropped out. Um, fuck them, she said. She said, Fuck them. 'em, I'll do it anyway. Uh you know what? Even if it's only me. If it's me and you, Why? we'll do it. So it's yeah, like it. fantastic. Why don't you come over and we'll just go through my, my, my address book and see what we can get. And that's what we did for about three days. She was brilliant. I've never um I've lost my um I always I loved her work and but it was when I saw how she how she threw herself into it with me. I think in all fairness after about three days and we'd called the west coast when it would open up and she'd get on to um the Pistols' guitarist, you know, everyone who knew everyone, and everybody was called. I think we just got Kevin Ayers <laughs> out of it, but uh, but still, uh, hey, he was brilliant.
0: Well, you see, it's interesting because the the fact that they were they were uh, actually up for it at all was testament to sort of Sid's appeal, isn't it? Because you're right. I mean, you can imagine lots of people saying, no, "Oh, it's Pink Floyd." I'm not Pink Floyd. But Sid right. Barrett. I mean, yeah. Paul Paul's, Paul's mate, John Lydon, of course, is was was another uh, Barrett fan, right? Wasn't yeah. he? And yeah. um, you know, uh, despite the sort of Pistols wearing them, um, we
1: fucking ate pink floyd t-shirts um uh, he he loved not yes not sid's pink floyd i mean Mm. they were it, it was it was you know he was the real thing and what an influence uh he had but funny you mention um john Lydon because i think you know they they liked a lot more uh what you might have called happy music. I, on my 21st birthday, I remember lying down in a room with about eight, nine, ten other people, and one of them was... Uh, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Jones. Steve Jones. Steve Jones, I Joe. He was yeah. lying in there too, right. and somebody put on Empty Glass by Pete Townsend, and uh, and he went... And it was Rough Boys was the track, and he went, what's this? And he, he managed to get up and get step over all the bodies and go down and he went, Pete fucking Townsend, amazing. You know, so they were... There was more... To it than uh, wasn't it? And the can, I mean, everyone loved can, yeah. John Lydon like, yeah. was it a Van de Graff generator, wasn't Well, uh, are you ready for another part of it? Because so. there was what happened was at a little bit later, these bands would come in and there'd be a big buzz, and you'd hear this American band coming in, and the new one was going to be this guy. Uh, this this band, The Stooges, with this guy, Iggy Stooge, as he was called, Uh, and all the countercultural people said, we're going to have this all-nighter at a club in Leicester Square called Bumpers. So, we all bought our tickets, and, uh, I was selling Oz magazine now on the streets and getting some money to do it, so we got our tickets, and it was, he was going to be there, and there was this big buzz, and there were, it was a benefit for something, probably Oz again, and, uh, but an all-nighter for a fifteen-year-old, when you got to school the next morning, it was pretty tough. And after a while, you know, you'd run out of grown-ups that you could talk to, and I started to feel awfully tired. So I wandered into the gents, as you might, and just tried to sort of splash some water over my face until i killed kill about ten or fifteen minutes in there. <laughs> I came out of the cubicle and I, and I, I I'm, I'm, I'm standing at the urinal, and this guy comes up and he's got silver leather trousers. So not thinking this is a bit forward, uh, I finish urinating and I say to him, I turn to him, I say, great trousers. And he says, really? Hey, thanks, kid. Uh, my name's Iggy. I said, Ig- Iggy? You didn't oh. shake hands, did you? <laughs> I, 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 think I thought it was <laughs> his hand. It, it was now. rolled. <laughs> it was something, anyway. Uh, and, uh, and he said if you'd like to come and see me at my hotel, why don't you, like, drop in and see me? I'm, I'm staying at the uh, Royal Garden overlooking the park uh, in, in Kensington High Street. So it's like, oh, sure. So I went out and I talked to my friends and then everything went off. And next day I went to school and he'd given me his number. And I, I oh, t- I don't know his number. Maybe he hadn't. And, no, he had. He'd said, come on. And I said, I have to come off to school. I'd taken an older friend because I thought, he 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 had a, you know he had platinum hair and silver trousers. It he, he was, mm. I wasn't sure. So uh, I went, and I went up to the room and he had an electric guitar lying on the bed and he asked, what what, what would what would you like to drink? And I said, drink. Like I not drink. <laughs> so I racked my brains, creme de moth <laughs> He ordered me a creme de Monde. Um he told me all about drugs and why you didn't want to take heroin. I mean, it was very interesting. Wow, what that's to, interesting. Uh, so, yeah. well, hold on a second. So, you, you were telling
0: us that you got a lecture on the ills and risks of drug abuse from Iggy Pop?
1: Yeah, Iggy Stooge. Iggy that Stooged was Iggy Pop. But I, it was nice that he felt that he wanted to say mm. that. So mm. he he really talked about how mm. if there was anything in the... It, it, all drugs were okay, but if, if that was in the room, you would crawl over broken glass to get it. And the point is, it could wreck your life. Uh, presumably, he was saying it had wrecked his. Mm. But we, I finished my creme de menthe, and my friend talked a bit more about things that Iggy probably knew, you know, like uh, Motor City and things. And, uh, and then he said, um, I'm doing these concerts at King's Cross. Would you... We'll put, I'll put you guys on the door. Do you want to come down? And he was so polite and sweet. He said, yeah, love to. The Raw Power uh, cover was shot there by Mick Rock. And we went to King's Cross. It was late at night when he came on. They came on stage. I mean, I, I was used to listening to the kind of music we have been playing. I mean, I was hip to the... And I'd seen the MC5 doing... Kick out the jams and things but still music was changing the drugs were changing this was what the counterculture my counterculture seemed to love these guys they were the, they were the hippest hippest thing and went there and on comes eggy and the thing takes off like a rocket it's it's insane <sighs> the power that's coming off the stage and people are banging on the stage, and a guy has his hand on the stage, and Iggy goes up and stands on the guy's hand until <laughs> and then and then he smashes a beer bottle a bit later on and slices into his chest. It was it was unbelievable at some point the PA goes mad, the feedback and he starts singing the shadow of your smile. He was incredible, and afterwards we went back to see him. And he was back to that real sweet, mild mannered <laughs> James Osterberg thing. Hey, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Good, good hey. Well, I was a very good, yeah. I no, it went pretty well, I think. And uh, I would love to play uh, Search and Destroy because that's apparently the first time he ever played it. Oh god and
0: boy, the one who searches in this Yeah, so punk. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Incredible. I mean, you think about the uh, the punks. So you could
1: still hear it all in there. Come all in, in there. It. Johnny Rotten was there. there. I mean, it, uh, watching it. That is the sound of punk. And, and it's so incredible that he had it. Because, uh, you know, t- to me, when I first started listening to him, it was like, surely he wants to be Jim Morrison, was I, I mm. think my 15-year-old self was thinking, you know. That, that, and, and it just isn't. But, God, it's...
0: And actually, you know, with, with Twink, you know, it's interesting because, of course, he went through that sort of journey as well from this kind of, you know, gentle psychedelic stuff into some quite krautrocky rocky yeah. punk stuff, you know, at the same time. And actually, that brings us back to West London, I think, and you, actually. But just before we do that, Paul, why don't we give us a few more, just to set the scene of that countercultural uh, space, give us a couple more IT small ads.
2: Guy, 22, and girlfriend, 24, and child, 3, seek accommodation in Commune in London, fairly central, will bring in regular money, artistically, musically endued, endued even, etc. Friendly offers to Martin Sue, 15 Birch Street, Ashton-under-Lyme, Lancashire. My neck of the woods. Long-haired joiner. Was that you? (laughs) Was that you at some point? (laughs) 26 years, own pad, on good scene, most sincere, needs wick to share experiences, expenses, etc. think
0: chica, that's something that's meant to this. Yeah,
2: it just says <laughs> wick, I'm going to go with the wick. Okay, for indefinite period, suit nurse or similar type. No nonsense, please. Wonderful. <laughs> please, could you help? The girl I have spent the last five years with has left and is having another guy's child. I'm really broken up by it the only hope I have of getting her back is by getting a pad in or around Victoria Station I know it sounds mad but it really would get us back together so please would you answer this ad any pad will do around Victoria if there's any guy or chick with a pad that they don't want to lose but won't be using for a few months if they're going to the US or something I really need a place David Martin, 44 Earl's Court Road, Kensington Bless him
0: quite specific there uh, on the Victoria Station thing. Huh. I, I don't think that relationship was bound for success somehow. <laughs> no. feels <laughs> like no. it's going to take it <laughs> if you had to get back <laughs> specifically <laughs> near Victoria. That boat had sailed. <laughs> <the way. laughs> that boat had sailed. Um, Nick, let's come back to you in West London. By the way, uh, just so that we know, we can tick that off. How are your folks with all this stuff? You're, li- you're leading this deeply strange for your <sighs> peers' life. You yeah. know, you're, you're out
1: doing all this sort of stuff. Yeah. What did they make of it? I think for my father it was never the same um after the isle of Wight for very many years until the dream academy uh, made it into the american charts i think that was the mm. it, he came back to him but think before that he was sh- pretty sure i'd end up in prison or dead um you know during this period i was brought back by the police on a uh, Number of occasions because you know everything you did in the alternative society. You know you were either stickering the Leicester Square Tube station. I got brought back, sticking anti divine light, no, anti uh, festival of light, which was some Mary White house thing. So we were stickering <laughs> everywhere, but we got caught by the. And we were brought back by the police, and it was like not again. You know, it went on and on. I, I'm thinking about this program. I was kind of amazed. You know, I went to see the dead at Bickershaw or Lincoln Festival they did after they'd played in London, and everyone was there, it was brilliant. And um, And on the way back, I, I everyone had gone. I didn't know how to get back, and I suddenly saw Richard Neville, and he said, "Oh, look, John Peel is there with his jeep. Let's ask him for a lift back to London from Lincoln." And John Peel, of course, you know this was the counterculture. It's like not well, not that kid. <laughs> and I said, "No, oh, okay." So we got in, and we he had a wonderful jeep, and he 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 bought in the roof. He had these things he could pull down. You could sleep in, and we stopped somewhere on route. When we got to near London, he said, where would you want to go? And I said, well, I've got to go to school. Could you could you drop me somewhere like in Notting Hill and I'll get down to Gloucester Road? So he, he said, of course, you know, and he <laughs> dropped me on Kensington Church Street and I took a tab of speed and I went straight into school. So, you know, that was what were my parents thinking. What I mean is it's, it's fantastic. They didn't say you can't possibly mm-hmm. go, I suppose, Lincoln... Had taken place over the weekend, and I got back on a Monday, and I'd managed to convince them somehow I was going with friends. They they'd become perhaps my father slightly given up, perhaps, mm. but my mother was incredibly supportive of it mm. and believed that it was all going to lead to this flowering of my own artistic right. world, and was very keen and uh, t- and very very supportive. Which of course it did, amazingly.
0: I mean, also West London at this time, I suppose for. for, for your dad too he was around uh, then wasn't it I mean thinking you
1: know you got Frestonia maybe a bit later I suppose no, it, Fresh- it, it was later Frestonia but that was that was Hethcote Williams Hethcote Williams everyone, yeah. the Tabernacle yeah the Tab know. the Tab was where the Floyd uh, Sid's Floyd played in 66 to try and yeah. get the Rackman to open the squares yeah. Joe Boyd and all those people were protesting to say look we all rent uh, bedsits around the squares but we're not allowed to get into these famous uh right, squares right so for people
0: who don't know Rackman the kind of infamous slum landlord who owned a big chunks of those buildings and was, you know, letting them out to, to, to people in horrible conditions? And they're actually beautiful buildings surrounding beautiful squares. But it was uh, yeah. so that was part. Of, I didn't yeah. know that. that was part yeah. of the process too, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. then, and then the free school movement and all yeah. that,
1: all that stuff. It's all going on in Nottingham. Wasn't You're it? right. You're right. right. So- and- BIT, which was a, um, a counterculture information service that was on mm. Westbourne Park Road. If you get old editions of ITRs, you'll always see BIT, you'll see RELEASE. That was at the top of Elgin Avenue. Um, that was for drug busts and for people People were always getting busted and they had a fund and the Beatles and Stones and people would put money into that so that mm-hmm. there was the counterculture or people who were living the life could, could also get access to to legal aid.
0: Yeah, and, and Heathcote Williams and Richard Arden later running that, they were on a list, didn't they, on how to, how to break into a building and squat it and, you know, where
1: to find squats. And First all that time something. I met him. Is that right? Opposite, now? on Labra Grove, opposite the police station, trying to break into a car. <laughs>
0: Squat his, it. <laughs>
1: yeah, try it was incredible. And I because he was a hippie, you know, I smiled, and then he, he he knew someone I knew and he said, come back and I went back to his place, which was probably somewhere off Abra Grove, and uh, he had a mirror where you could see that he'd made that you could um that you could see your own aura in it. Now, <laughs> was, I mean, he was pretty was incredible. But you know, years later, years later after Fristonia he went into some kind of mm. decline in what mm. you saw before Whale well Nation, before he came up again, and you would see him lying on the street, you know, in a pool of piss, you know, mm. outside the uh, shoe menders. Uh, and, you know, you'd you'd step over him, mm. on, on, and they said that all the great graffiti in the m- mid 70s to late 70s was his work that was on the great church um it had um uh opium is the religion of the people not religion The people. everyone went that's that's another of hefgood so he was he was doing great work but he was still but he was very down and out
0: he seemed like uh one of those 70s Figures, a bit like R.D. Lang actually, or something. They sort of fell backwards into their own shadow somehow, didn't they? Um, you know, sort of inspirational and sort of working and doing all the right work in the right people in the right places, but somehow their own demons
1: kind of like dragged, oh, yeah. them, dragged them back or something. I they? think the demons are there, you know, like what Jung called the negative anima. You've got the positive side coming up. In, in and expressing itself in your highest artistic endeavors and you've got the negative anima that's almost as strong and maybe this is a universal force that's mm. probably exists out there in the great world you know the great universe beyond and and uh, he was definitely that but he he came back again Well, mm. Nation I mean he was that was so ahead of its time and so brilliant you know he, he moved to uh, St. Germans in uh, in uh, uh, Cornwall and uh and started work on that book and, and then had, a, had another whole period and yeah, lots of right. these people came back. Mm.
0: So West London, it was, it's a very fertile place, political, uh, and 70s are moving on by this time, right, okay, and then um, let's go back, it's, because then the other thing you could, you've got in Nottingham, of course, is the whole, you've got the whole Afro-Caribbean culture, you've got the whole reggae thing, and then of course the clash and all that start, stuff starts to come out, I right. mean, to walk us through that, and then what were you doing and then I mean, how, how did this start to feed into your music? Um,
1: The Jeff Dexter, the DJ, uh, he had said, I'd been writing songs now uh, since I was about 15, 16. I'd been playing them to him and he'd been going, not that one, not this. Yes, this is good. Uh, After a bit of time, he said, you should have a band. You should have a band. And I know two brothers. They're brilliant. You should meet them. So I said, "Okay." So that day we were doing the... Uh, free fest, free high Park concert with Toots and the Maytals and uh, McGuinn, Roger McGuinn was headlining, and up came this kid with red fuzzy hair and said, "Hey, uh, my name's Sam. I'm a bass player." I said, "I said uh, Jeff says you know about uh, you know the band." So it's like I said, "Oh well, tonight I'm uh, DJing at Dingwalls because I'd left school now. i I left school 16, I'm now a DJ at Dingwalls 17, and." Uh, He said, um, Why don't you? I said, Can you put my name on the door? I'll come to Dingle's. And so he came, and then we formed this band. And he brought his brother, and we started playing, and we started teaching ourselves how to sing uh, harmonies and things. And um, Mark Boland heard us via Jeff Dexter and Tony Howard, who managed Mark Boland. And uh, Tony became our manager, and Mark heard our stuff and said, "Uh, Hey, I'm making a new album. Why don't you guys come and sing backups on it? So, so we went into Air Studios above Oxford Circus, high above Oxford Circus. They they were they were they were they were uh, doing the Beatles uh, live at Shea Stadium. I mean, the Beatles, long as it split up, but that was there. I remember, and and, and Brian Ferry was there too. Uh, they were all in. We only saw their names up on the board, but we were wow. We went into a, a room not much bigger than this, a very small, where Mark was it had a big studio machine, and he was. He said, "Right, we start." He slowed down the tape machine, and then he got us to sing in one key, and then he'd speed it up, and then he'd get us to sing in another key. And I kept saying, "It's not in tune." He goes, "Doesn't matter." Okay, <laughs> this is where you learn. It's about the vibe. So he just he 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 his 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 own energy motivated us it was a real lesson that's what's going down on tape don't worry about the tuning we'll get and when Mm. he played it all back it was all slow and fast and all in different things all together and made this amazing sound and 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 he was right the Mm. vibe was there so he said tonight i'm going down to the roxy this new club i said oh yeah i've heard about it and he said come down with us so we the three of us went down with him and um I saw uh, immediately uh, uh, Johnny Rotten and uh, Billy Idol having a kicking fight, (laughs) which was fantastic. Who who won? uh, uh, Rotten, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, it was long before Billy Billy was all hair at that point. You know, it was was his only thing at that time. But, you know, we walked into the... To the room, the adverts were going to come on, the Damned were there, Mark was there to see the Damned. First thing, th- everybody loved Mark, and they mm-hmm. all got, because they said, the new look Mark Bowen when he cut his hair, he's one of us. And the first thing that came on was um, Anarchy for the UK, and I just, I'd read about it in the Melody Maker, but I thought, my God, this is like my generation, but my generation's my generation. So immediately, you know, we had long hair and we were three part harmony band. Said, so This is this isn't gonna work. It's it's all changed. Um gotta gotta change. So we started our album was about to come out, uh, but then immediately we got our uh, electric guitars, we changed, you know and tried it. Uh, it didn't work, uh, you know, but that then um uh I I, I of course I went to see uh one concert somewhere and backstage there was this guy looking fantastic in a leather jacket white frilly shirt his arm around some beautiful girl with a blue and white striped top and uh, he said hello and the guy next to me my friend went "Man, that's Mick chance I said oh uh, I didn't really know him as Jones, you see. Before I knew him as Mick, and then he went. So yes, I, I know who you are. We were in a roundhouse together. You didn't think I was cool because I couldn't roll a joint. It was like, oh fuck! <laughs> and I was like, he sure can roll one now. Um, and uh, I was like, God. Anyway, they, they were t- yeah, they were incredible. I went to see them, and uh, of course immediately and all that stuff. And we, 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 um, the my band split up, and I went to New York, where. Um, the new wave was happening, and so it was Talking Heads, Blondie, and everyone. And that, then I there, I was like, now I've got to change what I'm doing, and um, form my own band, and uh, electric band. And I came back and put this band, the act, together that Joe Boyd ended up producing on Hannibal Records.
0: And meantime, the underground itself has kind of, like, started to metamorphosise and, and has, morph, isn't it?
1: It has. It's very interesting. The key figures, Boss Goodman, I mean, lots of these key figures were involved, were producing the demos of the new bands. They'd seen it coming, they were on it. It had come from pub rock. We'd had Kilburn uh, and the High Roads, which was Dury's band, Ian Dury's band and things, you know, and I'd seen them with the uh, Dr. Feelgood when I was DJing at the... Around, at the Uh, So, you know, it had changed, it had changed. But a lot of people had become casualties. The end of Ladbroke Grove, uh, the end of Portobello Road, was very scuzzy now. And there was an awful lot of heroin and a lot of casualties. Um, And the ones that couldn't make the change seemed to... um, Seemed to disappear, and uh, and 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 a lot of lot of them died, and a lot of them rejected the new uh, scene, but others didn't. Others embraced it, and and uh, you know because the bands of the Grove were were the Fairies and Hawkwind, and they even they uh, got totally influenced and moved on. Yeah, but they, they took, had they been took it the on, band. They? They, they did. Took it on, yeah, and yeah. and Farron, of course, did. Yeah he uh, he i met he was in new york when i got there and he he was then living i think in san francisco or something so he was totally into it he was very hard he gave me some very heavy sort of advice yeah kid you better fuck in it so, you know if that's like some <laughs> terrible you know have a fucking car crash why don't you you know then that that's going to make everything different yeah that will help you you know everything was sort of you know and very do you,
0: punk do you think so and that punk spirit and the it was the darkening of the dream somehow that the, whatever it was that had propelled flower power, whether it was acid or the times, the sort of, was it that the momentum of that dream was was running out now or something and maybe the bad drugs and the, you know, the difficult
1: po- politics, the you know, lots of po- poverty in the UK and stuff like that, was it? That for sure. Also the flower power thing had metamorphosized into this kind of rather baggy blousy thing of prog rock mm-hmm. which you know you could hear how great those musicians were the soft machine guys on the Kevin Ayers track we played earlier on i mean they were great musicians but uh that though a lot of that the 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 musicianship had blo- blo- got bloated into this really sort of and and money and huge tours in America and and quite rightly a revolution was needed and the revolution was the young guys going anyone can do this we don't mm. care about that we don't care about the sound everybody you know, wanting this we don't care about a triple album we're just going to make these two minute songs what interests me is how how punk it's still viewed as kind of hip whereas hippies aren't and yet punk didn't have to me, anything didn't have as large an influence on the world as the movement that grew out of beats into flower power and and beat music and rock and roll. You know, but actually on another way, it was an extension of it. But if you see an American uh, producer of a TV, famous TV show, you know, now, or someone at the Al Pacino, you know, they'll have a kind of mock punk haircut because it's (laughs) It's groovy, it's still mm. hip. Mm. But it's ridiculous. It's not it's no hipper than you know, and, yeah. and you've got to take it on its artistic merit and what really worked and what was great. And as we heard, I mean that, that search and destroy still sounds current and brilliant.
0: Blew the cobwebs away, didn't it? Seventy one, yeah, seventy two, so we had Barry Kane in and um, who did Flexi yeah. uh, Flexipop magazine in the eighties and of course he was the um, what was he the punk correspondent for Record Mirror? Mm. And he he talks about that time, the punk times, you know, it's it's an incredibly short period of time, you know, it's like two years maximum and 18 months you know,
1: that kind of of course that the the pistols were really doing it. And then and then it actually went to the to the clash. I mean, Mm. why London calling that was, you know, that was its complete break crossover moment worldwide, I'd say Mm.
0: maybe. Yeah, because they went massive in America, didn't they, and stuff, you know. And actually, I suppose, so it was long overdue, you know, it because you say this baggy puffed up thing, uh, and, um, you know, is prog rock ever going to be cool again? Funnily enough, actually, I went into um, a pub in Shoreditch last year. I popped in for a pee, and there was a sound check going on, and I put my head around the corner, and there was a Japanese guy there with long hair and a triple neck guitar. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So prog- very cool again. <laughs> so,
1: Prog's <laughs> back. Prog no, brog, brog is definitely back. <laughs> the thing about the internet and downloading streaming is that nobody... And there's a generation that doesn't care whether that's a demo of mm. a Nick Drake track. You know, we used to be so, hey, there were only three Nick Drake albums and each one, you know, these are the tracks and these are the other ones. Now, nobody cares about that. And they'll stack that next to Beethoven's Fifth, next to right. Search and Destroy. Yeah. That's gone out of the window, hasn't mm. it? That sort of really caring about these uh there's still no excuse for triple neck guitar, though, is so there really? I don't know. If you, could, if you <laughs> oh, want to play bass a, and 12 are. string and six... you're a six. long-haired
2: Japanese, you look very cool. <laughs> there, very cool. He it's did look... Ma- hey, hey Mark She's Ronson,
1: doesn't he have a player... He was playing a double neck the other day, you know. Key, <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. No comment. The back. Marcello, the my friend
0: has got just got keytar for Christmas. Oh, yeah. I think I bid
2: against her for that. Did you? Yeah, there's oh, one on Catawiki. 160 oh, uh, quid. I'll tell her. Damn yeah. it, she got Dier. it. Yeah. fighting for a keyboard. Can key we go time. back to
1: Nick Drake and the guitar? Yes. Do
2: you own a Nick Drake guitar?
1: I do. What happened was I was, um, I left school, 16, and I, I, I had a Yamaha guitar, and that's what I was writing my songs on, and I was determined to work all summer. And uh, by a Martin, because Martin's were, I was, you know, it was, this was 1974. So um, I worked at the RCA Record Factory um, and um, at the top of Labrock Grove. And, uh, it, you know, it wasn't good if you were small and you were going to be carrying hundreds of records, but we managed to finagle quite a I'd have an entire uh, Elvis Presley uh, collection due <laughs> anyway uh, and a few young people were also there um, and when I'd got my 200 quid together which is what a Martin would have cost um, Jeff Dexter came over and said uh, oh listen by the way you know that wonderful album one of his favourite albums uh, Brighter Later he said you know that guitar that I've always shown you on the cover I said yeah he said um the photographer Nigel Weymouth, um, who took the picture, that's his guitar, and um, he uh, and Nick hated having his picture taken, so he'd always just take out that guitar to relax him. him and, you know, um, anyway, he's he's completely broken. He wants to sell it, and um, you know, if you want, you could put some money into that. So I said, well, I mean, this was you know, nobody Nick Drake was still alive and so nobody was really interested. I adored Nick Drake, but no—I mean, no one I knew knew him. Oh, just very few people around. It was much more John Martin they seemed to know. And um, so I, I bought it, and uh, and then I wrote all the things on it. You know, Life in a Northern Town, all those things. You wrote and, that on my guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my guitar. That was—I mm-hmm. played it on. Every, you know, I still play. It's got uh, high strings on it now, but it's—it—it's it, it's, uh, yeah. It wasn't his, but it, But it's... It's connected. It was near enough. Yeah, no, it's it was... part of his. It, it? it was Eric Clapton's. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't his. Eric Clapton left the pheasantry and... Um, yeah, Eric Clapton it's left it's the pheasantry. Uh, where in, that was a hit place to live in the 60s, in the mid-60s, and Nigel Weymouth took it over. And um, he... Uh, when he took it over, because I guess Clapton was now in cream and was now moving on to higher things... Um, he said, oh, there's a guitar left in the cupboard. And uh, they called up Clapton, or Clapton's guy, and they said, what's what's it look like? And he said, oh, it's a brown guild And he went, oh, you can keep it. So that was that. Uh...
0: So, Nick, let's move on. So you form your own band. Yeah. And, well, you've already formed your own band, but now you're actually trying to make a band which is more of the time. Yes. Because the times have rapidly changed, yes, they actually. Are. Yes. So so, yep. so let's move on. So what
1: tells West London at this time, and you at that time, and how this how it turned into... It's the next thing. Funnily enough, still you've got all the Floyd living all around there, and Peter Jenner's managing. Uh, you know, um, by '79, uh, he's managing the Clash, and he'd managed the Floyd early on, and so you know, you. Um, they, um, David Gilmore, I'd met him already, and he'd said, "If you need someone to uh, join your band, my brother would be great uh, on guitar." So I. I I don't want a guitarist. I'm not a, I'm a guitarist. I'm looking for a keyboard player. But six months later, it was just still me and the drummer. So I said, all right, give him a go. And so they that whole world sort of opened up. Um, and so a lot of seeing the wall and all those people were living around um, Notting Hill. And, uh, and, this, and I suddenly, you know, this was like I felt I was much more coming to my own time. But it didn't work. The album got a got a four-star review on Rolling Stone. I went over to talk to Timothy White, who was a brilliant journalist. He loved the album, but it didn't work. And this was my second shot. I'd had two albums, and uh, neither of them had worked, and I couldn't work out why. And and I had to do some proper thinking and realized I'm just copying other people. And um, I that was how I learnt but copying was no good you got really good at copying and by the time you put your new song out it was like the last album by that person mm. and you know so that was brought about a real moment of I've got to knuckle down and try to find my own voice and I'd met a keyboard player through an ad in the Melody Maker I was classically trained uh, Gilbert Gabriel and we took about a year just playing our own Finding our own voice, and when we came out from that, our hair was long because we've been you know, we were back to that. Uh, and I said, Well, let's just keep it. You know, we haven't got you know, clothes, that's cool. We got what we well, you know, things, and um, and uh, everyone else is playing you know, it's sort of punk uh, funk, is playing you know, it's sort a of white boy funk, and it's uh, you know, uh, Spandau's and uh, Duran Duran, and uh, it's not. So let's just be ourselves. What mm. does it matter? And we took it, our demos, to every single, every major or independent record company, and not one of them was in the least bit interested. And then after about a year, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade said, All right, let me just take it. I, I think this needs money. I'm going to take it to America. And he came back and said, All right, Warner Brothers and Sony are interested, and I think you should. And I wanted to go with Warner Brothers because they'd had Neil Young. Mm. Uh, REM uh, everyone I loved actually they, they'd, they'd had and so um, the funny thing was that we ended up being called a hippie band and uh, within six months ecstasy was starting to percolate through and you know, I'd come across it with you know, Dinner with Andy Wall in New York, and and found out dinner with Andy him. Wall you just dropped that in well, there. Yeah. Because, I love because, that because stuff he stuff. asked me, what, "What would you like, kid? Can I do anything for you in New York?" And I said, "Yeah, get me some ecstasy." And he said, "Call the uh, call the factory." And I called the factory. <laughs> I, th- I think we should probably cut not cut this one out. No, no, don't, uh, don't keep going. Uh, uh, and and I call the factory the next day, and uh, and he said, "I'm so sorry, kid. There's nothing, no, 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 nothing around." You know, but but I was aware that there was a new. Mm. And actually, we were in sync with the new times that were coming, which was uh, new psychedelia. Mm. So, and I actually felt probably more or well, equally at home, maybe more at home in that than uh, than where I'd been in in my interim.
0: Yeah, because of course New Summer of Love. Yeah. All that was coming, wasn't it? You know, and um, and a rediscovery of all those sort of values with the different music, different technology and all that sort of stuff, right? And and these big gatherings of people in the countryside, it was all very countercultural, wasn't it, actually? totally Wonderful. A different kind of underground, right. Right, but also fueled by the substances. I think it's time to hear a the Dream Academy song. Um Nick, just tell us about this one, the demonstration.
1: This is the story of the demonstration at the Oz trial, and somewhere in the mid '80s, I was in my flat in Ladbroke Grove, as I was by then, having got the Dream Academy was happening, and we'd had life in an northern town, and I suddenly found myself writing a bit right back there to that summer of '71, um, and um, writing about the demonstration and how we ended up at the Old Bailey and. Uh, even telling the story of how uh, the speeches that were made there on the last verse. <laughs>
0: does it feel um hearing that now and that taking you back to that
1: 1971 and all those it, 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 times it's it's so it it is exact I mean not the style of the music necessarily that but the you know that last verse when we were outside waiting to hear whether the you know hundred of us waiting to hear whether the Oz Editors had been found guilty or not, and they were to emerge with their hair shorn and paraded in front of us. And we were when the rioting kicked off. While we were waiting, Warren, who was a San Francisco gay who was the boyfriend of one of the editors, he, he stood up and he said, look on this building, and we looked up at the scales of justice on the roof of the courtroom of, of the Old Bailey, and he said, from all over London, you can see them clearly, weighing the balance of truth in each hand. You can see her. But the funny thing is, as you get closer to the building, they start to disappear until when you go inside justice has disappeared completely and we just and that was the last verse of that song so it's it and that's those were the times Mm.
0: well the rest for you i mean it was just the times were in some ways just beginning of course with the dream academy and all that's come since um we are out of time here um uh, sadly but when you think back And, of course, you still live in West London, don't you? You still live in the place you were born. I mean, you still live in the the area you were born. You still see it. And, of course, it's gone through these radical changes, hasn't it? And I think it's probably important to remember when we we talk about this stuff, there is still an underground... There's still an underground... In london not the tube, but actually it's probably in new cross
1: or peckham definitely in a council estate, or in yes. clapton or yes. something like. it's or all over england in pockets all yeah. over britain in pockets the, yeah exactly yeah. in scotland and yes and the, it keeps uh, welling know. up through the arts you see mm. it in the in the visual arts you see it in the music you mm. keep seeing it, it you can't keep it down
0: you can't keep it down and even you know strange political events like we've recently had here um yeah. brexit <laughs> and stuff you know you think well, it's, it's gonna there's gonna be an artistic response to that and
1: and and i mean um, You know, the the, the climate change, the Extinction Rebellion are always counterculture. And that's the big story. You know, that's that's what's going to blow this political bollocks out of the way. Because the real story is this. It's not lying and cheating to try and get power. It's... uh, it's what's yeah. what we're going to do about it.
0: Yeah, and Soho Radio actually devoted a whole. Um, they had uh, the Rebellion took over for a week or two, wasn't it? And right. actually, when they were in there, it was, it really felt like that, didn't it? Actually, they were screen printing their own stuff in the in the room, right. and they were you know they were out there straight and just doing it and broadcasting live. So it's always there. It's all the English, the British, the London, the Underground, or the world underground. It's still going on, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's. Will the the conscious uh, it's w- willing itself hmm. into consciousness through uh, uh, through the uh, arts I think and through right. through people who are paying attention. That's yeah. what that that was a young thing, yeah. you know. The subconscious strata is willing itself is is, is emerging through people who are paying attention
0: and perhaps it's also always somewhere that we're not quite aware of as well. So maybe it's not in Notting Hill anymore. It's not no, in Soho no, and it's it not doesn't in Chelsea. That's right. No. No. It's true. So um, Nick, thank you so much. You walked us through your own personal uh, route through the <laughs> English
1: underground and uh, How was that? It was, it was exhausting, <laughs> no, but it it, it, was, it was it was it was wonderful for me to go back there. Because it was such, yeah. they were such formative times, and they've informed my my whole life. Yeah. So it was. Thank you for asking me. It was a really great opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for a lucky life. Yeah.
0: So there you have it, the amazing life and countercultural times of Nick Laird Clues. What a story! What a set of stories. But of course, we didn't even get onto the 80s and 90s uh, with the Dream Academy. Maybe we should ask Nick to come back sometime and tell us what that was like. You've been listening to the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can find out more about what we do at www.bureauoflostculture.com. Look forward to sharing some more stories with you next time.